Today we're asking the question, is there such a thing as the spirit of cricket? When I heard that Mike Brearley was writing a book on that very theme, I wondered if there would be enough in the concept to sustain such a piece of writing, even in his hands. After all, if the spirit of cricket exists in our physical world, it's as a single paragraph that prefaces the current edition of the laws of the game. And from its inception, cricket seems to have been open to different moral interpretations. Its early years saw a sport full of skullduggery, gambling and general notoriety, frowned upon by the church and the crown for filling the pubs on a Sunday. It was the Victorians who adopted it as a symbol of virtue and Christian fair play, developing an image and a language that offered the game a new kind of morality, even as its empire exported British superiority around the globe. The story of cricket is still in many ways the story of empire. And cricket is played by Muslims, Hindus, Christians, atheists, even by Australians. Is there a single spirit that can unite and define us all? Mike Brearley made his England debut at the age of 34, and like very few others in the history of the game, is remembered first for the greatness of his captaincy. That, though, is only part of his story. As a batsman, he made more than 25,000 first-class runs, won four county championship titles with Middlesex, the Ashes home and away, and led England to a World Cup final in which he top-scored against the West Indies. On his retirement, he eschewed the traditional paths of punditry and coaching for a career in psychotherapy and writing, all the while remaining in close touch with the game. Mike, you've spent a lot of years in and around cricket. At which point in your life were you aware that such a thing as the spirit of cricket might exist? I would have been very puzzled by the name, but I think I probably was always aware that there were certain things you did and certain things you didn't do, uh, you know, you didn't hit anyone with the bat, you know, usually, usually yeah. on the whole. That was discouraged. Uh, you, you, you had to take turns. You had to be out, get out. You dropped a catch. Um, you, I, I, I think from an early age, I would understand that I had to... Uh, take into account selfishness. I mean, it doesn't mean to say I wasn't selfish, but I mean, I had to, it was, it would be, I would be reminded of it if I was too selfish, usually by my father in the earliest days, who was a very good cricketer himself. Yes, yes. You mentioned very early in the book, in the preface, I think, an incident that still brings shame to you of running out an American baseball fan who didn't really understand what running was. Um, that seems yes. like a strange thing to remember after all these years. I know it came back to me. I, uh, I didn't. Um, I didn't sort of. I didn't look it up in, in any way. It just sort of struck me. Yes, I was keeping wicket, and he was number eleven, and he was sort of guest player for the staff against the school team. Mind you, by then I was about sixteen or seventeen, but also only sixteen or seventeen. I mean, I wasn't um, quite as mature as. <laughs> I may have tried to be later on. Um, and he, he just thought that if you missed a couple of balls and you hit one on the third one, you had to run. And so he head off down the other end. Um, his bemused partner didn't leave the crease and mid on threw the ball to me as wicketkeeper. And shamefully, rather, I took the bails off, you see. Uh, I don't think it was to do with really 
And this is one of the questions I address in the book. How much is it a spirit that's specifically of cricket? And how much is it an ordinary spirit of how you go about your life and how you deal with other people, your family, your friends, your colleagues, your opponents, etc., etc.? And I think really it was just that I wasn't very mature. If I'd been a bit more mature and a bit more sensible, I'd have just sort of let him come back. Yeah, there's always a, a thought in cricket that it that it's a hard game, a tough game, a game that you learn by playing and by failing. Um, were you not just kind of enacting that sort of failure for someone else in order for them to uh, become a part of the game? That's very generous interpretation (laughs) um it is a hard game and you know one of the intrinsic hardnesses is that as a batsman if you make one mistake or you get one good ball or you're unlucky uh, you can disappear from the field for hours or even days you know that doesn't happen in most games it happens in baseball a bit but it doesn't happen if you make a mistake at tennis in the first serve or something that you no longer take any part in the game for the next several hours so it's a hard game in that way losses are more stark than they are at least for the batsman of course the bowler on the other hand you have to keep on going when you're being humiliated or obliterated and that can be more difficult than having the chance to disappear from the field and not embarrass yourself any longer to be properly fair to those people who wrote uh, the preamble to the laws for, for the MCC, which is uh, still in charge of the laws of cricket, they do uh, include play hard but fair yeah. as part yeah. of the spirit of cricket, which I um, uh, entirely subscribe to. That leads me to the question that when you consider the nature of the game itself, is cricket, is all sport simply implacable? as a game and in fact it just has a series of interpretations put upon it and as our social mores and opinions change so do those interpretations is the game itself always the same and is it just neither moral nor amoral it just exists it's a very interesting question but an odd question i think because it sounds as though there's a sort of essence of cricket which has got nothing to do with the behavior of the people who play it Whereas actually, I would say that playing cricket is a whole package. Now, of course, you're entirely right. um, And there wouldn't be an interesting book or conversation to be had if everyone shared the same values um, or if everyone made the same interpretation of what was within the spirit of cricket. But then that's true of life in general, isn't it? We have something like a social contract in our arrangements with other people you know, a degree of collegiality, a degree of fairness that, you know, it's not much of a conversation if one person talks the entire time and the other person says nothing at all, for example. So there's a give and take in ordinary human exchanges. You leave a bit of room for the other person. They leave a bit of room for you. Um, You don't uh, interrupt a conversation by hitting somebody over the head. You know, there are limits to what one can do within any sort of ordinary human transaction. And those are based on broad agreements. We might disagree about whether, for example, in cricket, one should walk if one knows one's nicked the ball to the wicketkeeper. 
or one should claim a catch if one knows it's bound, the ball has bounced. And I think those are different, by the way, as I say in the book. But nevertheless, we all agree that there are, we have a great deal of commonality in our agreement, partly in the fact that um, there is room for disagreement. But if you take one of the great maxims of ethics and life, you know, treat others as you would have them treat you, or do unto others as, yes, well, it is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, uh, which is common to all the religions and to hu humanism, um, you're not going to agree on every occasion what's the right specific thing to do, and you'll have fierce arguments about it. But nevertheless, a slogan or maxim is of help. It's yeah. a nudge. It's a reminder. Yeah. Uh, um, you mentioned walking there, and, and you opened the book with uh, some of these kind of moral dilemmas that cricket throws up walking the man cad um, yes. the, the uh, ball tampering that yes. manifested most recently in Australia against South Africa and you mentioned that each of these are kind of deeply idiosyncratic but they have a kind of moral difference as, as, as well as a moral similarity um, you know, one is regarded as worse than the other I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit there's another difference which is that some of these things are against the laws or rules of cricket, and some are not. Mancadding has never been against the laws of cricket, but has been considered, you know, by most people in my lifetime who are interested in cricket, who love it, who play it or watch it, as um, completely pernicious, or, uh, you know, mm. a terrible moral lapse. Whereas it, the thing that interests me about it is that I and many others have changed our tune about it in the last five or so years, five or six years. Are there differences in terms of severity? And um, I mean, there's out and out cheating. Uh, there's ordinary cheating where you do something you know is wrong to, to gain advantage. And there's corruption, which I think is worse than either of those things. And there's things that are more like social mores within particular groups. You know, just as if you go to India, it's common to eat with your fingers, but in a particular kind of way, carefully, and with it's very civilised itself. Um, whereas in England, if you start eating your roast beef and gravy with your fingers, most people are going to be appalled. Where did you grow up, etc.? So there are some things that are purely differences of convention. There are some things that are against the laws. There are some, some things which are against the whole essence of the game, which I put corruption to be, where you deliberately throw a match or a passage of play in a match in order to gain some other advantage, usually financial. And that seems to me to go against the whole spirit of the game in a much broader way. We all have our weaknesses. We've all at times done things, or I don't say all, because perhaps there are exceptions, but most people have done things that they're somewhat ashamed of, or that are slightly taking advantage of what's permitted or generally prescribed, or even prescribed by oneself. Um, so I think there are differences. It's interesting that uh, I wonder, as someone who in your career were, were 
in the heat of battle or at the centre of a couple of incidents that resulted in either changes to the laws or changes to the um, the uh, conditions of play. I'm thinking of the uh, the time in the One Day International when you put all of your fielders on the boundary for the final over before the time of fielding restrictions and also of course the the aluminium bat incident with Dennis Lilly um, which resulted in a, in a change to the law that all bats had to be willow. I wonder if when you're in the centre of something like that are you thinking of its implications or are you purely caught up within the game and, and, and the day and what's happening around you? Those are two interesting examples. Um, the aluminium bat we'd sort of had hints of it in the day or two before you know that dennis was going yeah. to use this aluminium bat and he was going to it was going to be a new great advantage and he was going to sell a lot of these bats in i don't know the northern parts of australia or the center of australia or whatever the places where you know the conditions would be rough you know really hard and rough and an ordinary bat wouldn't survive more than five minutes and i could see the point of that but I was pretty suspicious of it when he came out with this thing, which made a terrible twang every time <laughs> he hit the ball. And then when we took the second new ball, after he'd faced only a very few balls, you know, bits of the ball came off on the bat. And so actually, it was clear to me that this was completely against the intention of the law. You, you can't damage the ball as a bowler or a fielder. And you can't damage it with with your equipment as a batsman either. And so I I didn't have any compunction about complaining. Jeffrey Boycott complained about my complaining because Lily <laughs> got angry and bowled him out for naught a few a few <laughs> minutes later. Um, but um, uh, no, I didn't have any compunction about it, and I didn't think of long term outcomes. Though I did, I didn't like the idea as well, even before it happened. Yeah. Now, as to uh, ball tampering, uh, I'm afraid, as I say in the book, that in most cricket, probably in club cricket as much as in county cricket or test cricket, um, people have usually tried to do little things to the ball. You know, if the, if the seam's gone a bit flat, you want to pick it up a bit with your, your, your fingers. I think that's the most, that was the most common thing that was done in my day. And and sometimes it was done to an extreme so that somebody would really make it proud, the seam. And then if the ball landed on it, it was obviously more likely to deviate a bit. Mm. So that was sort of cheating. And the other bit was sort of making the ball back to its original shape. But you're supposed to do it with the umpire's supervision, you know, so that and maybe you didn't. So, but it was not considered a terrible offence it was considered more or less par for the course. And a lot of the umpires in county cricket had been bowlers and they'd done it all through their careers. And it had gone on, you know, probably since time immemorial. And they weren't too bothered about it. If you did it in the extreme way, they'd say something. But you wouldn't, you know, there were teams that were somewhat notorious for it and individuals. Uh, but on the whole, people might do a little of it. And if you were caught doing it or you went a bit too far, then you'd accept the fact that you deserved a slap across the wrists, but people would probably go back to doing it afterwards. Now, what happened in, in South Africa was uh, when Australia were playing 
uh, was went further than that. In the first place, it was using a tool other than one's fingers, namely sandpaper. It was um, the culmination of a very bad-tempered series and a very boorish behaviour, probably by both sides, but in particular by the Australians. They had a reputation for it over the previous year or two or few years. It had probably got a bit worse. And I think that was why it was because it seemed to go beyond the expectations of a cricket-loving public in Australia that they got such a severe penalty. You know, Steve Smith, David Warner, Cameron Bancroft. So in a way, they were unfortunate, but in another way, some of what they got, at least they deserved. And I think what the Australian board did was right. Steve Smith was given a ban one match as captain, and he was given some points, disciplinary points, which can mount up. Uh, But it it wasn't a... It wasn't... um, a heinous crime. And I think what made it worse was A, that they'd been boorish for some time, B, that they got the junior player to do it, uh, C, that they uh, told a lot of uh, part truths when they were caught, yeah. I don't know, one or two other things that made it worse. And the Australian board came in and banned them for a year, uh, two of them or one of them for nine months, and also uh, ruled that David Warner would never have a leadership role in the Australian team again. So you've got a bit of previous, if you know what the phrase means. <laughs> a bit of previous means you've done something before. Mm. And Steve Smith was banned from the captaincy for two years at least. So it was a kind of combination of things uh, that led to those penalties. I mean, it's interesting you make the point about the, uh, and, and I think several people talked about this at the time, that. Um, the Australian board, in the eyes of many people, had encouraged the very culture that yes. it then had to sanction. Yes. As a captain, as a as a thinker about the game, an administrator, or whatever, do you have a moral duty to create that framework? Yes. Yes, you do. Or to create a decent framework. You can't you can't perhaps do much more than that, except by your own example. And uh, as administrators, because there's been dubious administrator behaviour as well against the spirit of the game. I would say when uh, Australia, England and India um, sort of ganged together to run the ICC, the International Cricket Conference, in a way that was to their own advantage uh, and which was uh, arranged, I think, in order to, to... Try to by Australia and England to try to keep India online, not go off uh, in some other way if they didn't get a bit more of the funding uh, of international cricket competitions. But it's interesting too that within a year, almost all the Australian board had either resigned or been forced to resign. So they too had gone too far in creating uh, an atmosphere or a spirit in which um, winning at any cost became the main driving force. Whereas one should play fair but hard, hard but fair. One should um, have some civility and consideration in the game and not reduce it to gang warfare. 
And, you know, the, there were various things that I think Australia, which has always played hard and has usually played fair, uh, had gone, you know, it had gone too far. The Night Watchman podcast is brought to you by Rathbones Investment Management for individuals, charities and financial advisors. We couldn't do it without them, so please head over to rathbones.com to find out more about what they do. You mentioned administrative tensions there, the rise of India you touched on a little bit. Um, one of the most striking bits, I thought, in the book, and, and it was actually a, a point of almost self-examination by your by you as a as a writer and as a as a previous captain was when you spoke about um captaining Roland Butcher yes. back at um uh Middlesex and Roland Butcher for for people who don't remember went on to become the first black player to play for England. Um and you actually made a point then that in, in as one of your duties to him as a captain was to try and encourage him to be more aggressive both in his batting but in his sort of rebuttals of you know any any sledging or racist jibes that he received and then you found yourself looking back on that from a, from the point of view of a different era and wondering if if you too had almost been a part of the problem as well it was quite a complex knot yes. that you created there and i wondered how you went about unpacking that Well, I think BLM, Black Lives Matter, and the events of this year, starting with George Floyd's murder Mm. by the police, um, I think they've uh, sort of sharpened our thinking uh, and brought before the minds of a person who considers himself like me, a white liberal in the old decent sense of that word. And I think on the whole, that's what I am um, but I'm not um, purer than driven snow as it were and that's an unfortunate metaphor because it brings in whiteness in the, in the metaphor <laughs> yeah. but um, you know that, that we we are all brought up in a, a society which has a racist tendency um, or, and a colonial tendency of course when I was young and first going to primary school you know, most of the, the, the world was painted was pink on the map belonged to britain yeah and it seemed that was as far as i knew normal you know what else could i know at the age of eight or ten or something you know that it was this was normality and that the majority the vast majority of people i encountered in my west london suburb where i grew up were white i mean pinko gray actually but called white mm. you know and and the, and there was uh, racism around and although I didn't come across very much of it for quite a while it was there anti-semitism um, all sorts of things um, misogyny assumptions that were made about women that we, we we I and others were brought up with and we couldn't but be influenced by them and there would be things that were would would occasionally come out so I think looking at oneself is one of the things that Black Lives Matter movement has has um, asked for, demanded from us. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say that we're all going to be agree about everything on this matter any more than, or that it's all going to be politically correct, which is often a matter of cover-up and sweeping things under the carpet. 
And one of the things I say in the book is that although I had those questions about how I was with Roland Butcher, say, and there were other people as well, yeah. I think on the whole, what I did was good. It was done with a good intention in relation to him. It was done frankly. It was done with with a degree of care. We both could say things to each other that it wasn't just that I could say things to him, he could say things to me. And it was done out of, you know, a, a real desire for him to make the most of his ability and also to contribute, contribute to the Middlesex team. But I mean, that yeah. main thing was, what about you, Roland? Could you do this better? You know, he's such a talented cricketer, wonderful attacking batsman, a brilliant fielder. But he used to get out early on too frequently. And I, my view was, and I still think this was right, that there was a certain sort of playing elegantly in defence as being of great value, perhaps encouraged by some sort of, you know, in, inherent and in many ways valuable stylishness that he was brought up with in Barbados. Yeah. And, and you know, so I was trying to harden him up, toughen him up. You know, a bit like you said earlier, you mentioned earlier in the conversation. Should I, was I toughening up the American yeah. <laughs> visiting teacher into the, you know, the realities of life and the game? But I certainly was trying to do that with Roland. And I think that, you know, that sometimes that's uh, better than being simply PC and saying the right thing always and being careful, so careful not to offend anyone. Yeah. So yeah. on the whole, I, I, I don't, although I question it, uh, my role with that, I come down on my own side. I always remember you, your invention of the little skull cap that you wore underneath your cap. Um, mm. And you were one of the first to do this. I think it mm. was, was it the first time anyone had worn some sort of helmet? Probably very close to No, it. there were people in the past and, and actually Sonny Gavaskar also wore oh, something yeah. rather similar, which I didn't know even, you know, that was completely separate from my mm. yeah but it, I mean, I, it was sort of a, a a response to the kind of ferocity of the bowling at the time wasn't it yes. um especially uh you know clive lloyd's notion of, of of what the west indies bowling should be did you ever see that as some sort of almost like a corrective to uh you know the britishness the pink on the map that had prevailed you know lloyd oh, almost had to use, yeah had to use this aggression um, in, in a way that might not have been acceptable had you dreamt it up as a tactic. Um, you know, is, is there an element of that? Look, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I suspect there was an element of that. But on the other hand, and more importantly, I think, I regard the West Indies' attitude in cricket as being remarkable for how little that was the case, given that yeah. they'd been brought up uh, as you know, in a culture that had had slavery at the centre of it, and that it always had racism in the West Indies. You know, though of course it was different from the white racism in Britain, in that most of the people living there, you know, over the past, I don't know, well, probably over the whole history of the Caribbean, have been almost entirely black themselves or I don't know if some people use the word black for people of Indian or um, Eastern origin who came to the West Indies as well of course but nevertheless black so I thought there was probably an, an element of it 
Um, and, you know, do you remember Fire in Babylon? Yes. Rather good film about the rise of the West Indian team. They talked there a little bit, there was a phrase, the brothers, you know, which sounds a little bit like the family, you know, Cosimostra. Yeah. It's just a, a hint of it. Um, but I think that I didn't complain about the West Indies bowling. I didn't think they were doing anything they shouldn't have been doing, any more than Lillian Thompson were, or occasionally Willis and Botham, or, you know, so I, or, or Imran Khan, or well, Richard Hadley was um, a bit different, but there were lots of very fine, fast bowlers around then. And I, I thought, you know, the West Indies simply thought this was their main strength. They didn't have a good spin bowler at the time. And so although they picked in 1976, when I played those two tests, they picked Jumadeen, slow left armour, for the first test. But I, I think that was as long as he lasted. And it was yeah. after that that Clive went for the four fast bowlers, plus Viv or Larry Gomes or someone to bowl a few overs. So one result of Black Lives Matter has been that um, there can be a combativeness or an intensity in some of the demands made by people who are previously victims. And so those of us who were previously uh, tainted with um, a, a tinge, at least, of racism uh, are uncomfortable about that. So we, we receive something from people who were previously victims, which can be uh, itself unfair or bullying. And I think the remarkable thing about the West Indies cricket team is that they did so little of that. And, and I thought that on the whole there, well, actually entirely there, um, I didn't see anything ethically wrong or against the spirit of the cricket in what they did uh, with their bowling or indeed with their batting, which was <laughs> equally ruthless. Jeff Boycott was probably the man you opened most with in Test cricket. And uh, I suppose the perception of one of the perceptions of Boycott is that he was a selfish player, interested in the, the individual rather than the team, but also a kind of galvanising force. I mean, I know these are very reductive uh, phrases to use for someone who's such a complex person, but is being an individual in a team game actually bad? Is it against the spirit of the game or is it actually beneficial yeah. In the case of someone like Jeffrey, well, it's a very good question. Cricket is a team game composed of lots and lots of individual dramas of a bowler against one person with a team of fielders against an individual batsman. And unlike most games, most team games, you don't get such an obviously measurable appraisal of your individual performance after each game. So cricket, in a, in a way, that's one of its richnesses, is that it's this combination of playing for the team and the team being the main thing, but also you have to look after yourself. And indeed, if you don't look after yourself, you're probably not playing for the team quite often. So um, there is a... a a very delicate balance in some cases between these two things. There's not much, you're not much good to the team if you throw away your wicket unnecessarily in some hyped up idea of how, what the team needs, you know? You have to be shrewd as well. 
Now, Jeffrey was, a, as you say, a complicated person. He, and, you know, I, one of the things that I was fortunate about was that the England team was full of strong characters when I played for them, especially when I captained them. And they wouldn't let Jeffrey get away with too much, you know. They would tease him, make him laugh, make him realise that he, he, almost always, if he scored a slow 100 for England, that was a good thing for England. Yeah. And he was a terrific player. And everyone respected and admired that. His, his surviving, his capacity to survive, to put aside difficulties, you know, when the bowling has been on top and the pitches in favour of the bowlers and so on and so forth, and still be there at the end of the day's play, it was extraordinary. And, and, you know, something we all could learn from. It was one of the people whose name I would mention in my conversations with Roland Butcher. I say, look how aggressive in his defence Jeffrey Boycott is. You know, he's saying, "There, you're not going to get past me. You know, you're not going to. I'm not going to let it happen. You can't do it. You won't do it. I can keep you out until the cows come home." You know, there's something of that, and that was also admirable and necessary. Gritty, you know, nuggety, and one of the things I say about cricket in general and the spirit of cricket is, one has to give room in the game for nuggetiness. You know, yeah. a rough game, a tough game, a, a game of, um, you know, back streets in the north of England, a game of um, fields with 20 matches going on in India, you know, with everyone playing, uh, games on, on, in uh, street games in India, for that matter, or, and Australian outback games, you know, where there's no water, it hasn't rained for six months, and, you know, it's the one, you get one innings every every two weeks because you have one innings matches over four days play, four afternoons play. You know, it's a hard game. And so that nuggetiness that Jeffrey had was very important. And, you know, usually in the England team, almost always, as I say, if he was looking after himself, he was also looking after the team. Yeah. Not quite yeah. always. Not quite always. <laughs> but how did you deal with those occasions when... It was, you know, he was looking after himself. Well, the most notorious way it was dealt with didn't involve me. It was when I'd broken my arm and he was captain and he was playing in New Zealand at Christchurch and England needed some quick runs to increase their 100-run lead on on, on the, I think it was the fourth afternoon and evening. And Geoffrey was out of form, couldn't hit the ball off the square. Richard Hadley was bowling very well. and. Jeffrey was digging in, and I think it is true that Ian Botham said to Bob Willis, who was this vice captain by then, um, "Can I go in and I'll run him out?" And he did. He went yeah. in, ran him out, uh, played the ball to cover, or Jeffrey played the ball to cover. Said yes. He let him come halfway down, then sent him back. Jeffrey was run out by a good deal of the length of a pitch. And uh, Jeffrey was none too pleased, as you can imagine. Uh, and they managed to get him to declare the next morning. And uh, <laughs> I was watching. I was there <laughs> writing articles for the um, for, or for the Daily Express. Of, um, and um, Jeffrey wouldn't throw the ball to Ian Burton when he was bowling. You know, so he, the ball would be thrown the wicketkeeper to Gully, say. Gully would throw it to Midon, who was Boycott. And Boycott wouldn't throw it to 
Boycott would we'll throw it back to Cover, who had to throw it to Ian to get on ball the next ball. So, uh, you know, that was the, the, the most notorious example. I think, you know, I, mostly I would support Jeffrey and say to him, you know, you're all right, you carry on doing it your way, you know. And he wasn't always confident, Jeffrey, surprisingly unconfident. Mm-hmm. And he needed to be encouraged and reminded and, and sort of by people much, of much less ability than himself that he had to keep doing it his way and keep positive. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he and, and other players who have existed on that, you know, and it seems somewhat strange from the outside to say this about Boycott, but he was almost an emotional batsman, wasn't he, in the way that Peterson or someone was. He would ride the tides of feeling and have these yes. great ups and downs of his career and his yes. life. It was almost yes. like this was, he, equilibrium wasn't a thing for him, even the way he batted. Yes, except, except that when he batted, it's probably one of the things that gave him most satisfaction in his life. When he batted, he knew pretty well, he, you know, his emotions didn't run away with him. They actually supported his particular way of playing most of the time. At times, as I say, he could lose confidence. And, uh, you know, and as, as Ian Botham once said to him on the tour of Australia, you know, you're, you've got to, you're not, when you're playing at your best, you, you move like a boxer. You move your feet, you get into position, you, you're nimble, but you've got stuck. You know, and we, actually, I knew that feeling very well, of a sort of rigidity or stuckness. But Jeffrey, for a great player, uh, was, was stuck. And I think you know, that, that was very helpful to him, what Ian Botham said. Yeah. Although he would take the mickey out of Botham for having the nerve to tell him anything, you know? <laughs> but that was all right. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a slight aside, but it's something I've always wanted to ask you. Because um, as a as a as a teenager, I, I, me and my dad, he took me to the World Cup final in '79, um, and it's an extraordinary game to look back on. Because I remember, obviously, the West Indies batted first and made I think two hundred was it two hundred sixty or two hundred eighty? Ninety, two hundred eighty or ninety. Yeah. yeah, from their sixty overs, yeah. which at the time seemed to be this tremendous, almost unsurpassable total but if you think yeah. about it now yeah. so it, you, you know you can see the point soon in a 20 over game where someone's going to approach yeah. certainly yeah. To, you know 260 yeah. um, and then you and you and um jeffrey had this tremendous opening partnership it was around around 120 wasn't it and this is yeah. shows how long ago the game was in that i believe it stopped for tea didn't it the, the world yes. cup final stopped for, for tea, tea interval, did. which was astonishing yeah. but at yeah. that point he had like about 120 and another another sort of 35 overs or something to get the runs and yeah, yet it was I think we were 75 for no yeah. reason to tea. yeah but, uh, but then beyond that you the partnership went on didn't it so i'm waffling here yes, but, yes it did but, but it it seemed now that it would be the perfect platform from which to go on and win the game certainly a partnership like that and it just goes to show how much the game does change even when we're not watching that yes. if you looked back on that final now, we would regard what you did entirely differently. Yeah. Well, I think that 79, actually, for no wicket off 25 overs, was not bad. Yeah. If it had been 99, it would have been a lot better. But, you know, yeah. let's but against say the bowling that you were facing as well. well yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think the place we went wrong was in the next 
eight or nine overs after lunch, after tea, because that's when Viv bowled. And we let him bowl, I think it was six overs for 24 runs. And actually at that point, there should have been an onslaught against him and Collis King, who were the weak bowlers, the weak mm. link in their attack. And um, I feel still to this day bad about that. <laughs> I think it was probably more down to me than to Jeffrey. But and and I, you know, we had a lot of batting in the side: Gower, Gatting, Gooch, Botham, Randall. We had a, tr- a very good batting side, but you know there was going to be there were no fielding restrictions, so you could have Joel Garner bowling Yorkers at ninety <laughs> miles an hour from nine feet above the side screen, etc. Yeah. Um, with uh, seven or eight people on the boundary, you know, if, if you were them wanting nine and over or something. So we didn't, it was a mistake and it was a bad mistake or at least a failing. Yeah, I n- I've noticed that um, several times, not just in the spirit of cricket, but in your other writing, you've you've sort of looked back almost with a slight um, sense of regret about some of your playing career and some of your batting. Um, I see you smiling now. Yes, well, uh, I, I was I'm, thinking the only word I disagreed with was the word slight. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you yeah. have, people will find that interesting. I mean, um, and, and in the light of the spirit of cricket as well. Um, yeah. I just wondered, you know, is sport anything you can ever accept? Is it just human to always want more, to want what you can't have? This sort of guilt or shame or soul-searching um, has a good side. You know, you review things, you, you're you not happy with how you are, you uh, hope to mend your ways. But it can have a very uh, bad side too, which it can be inhibiting. It can make your feet stick in the ground you know like i was saying before Mm. it can make you rigid stiff up a lip to the limit as it were and that can interfere with what you can do so i think the allowing it's one of the interesting things about sport and cricket in particular is how can you get your head into the best possible place for playing i mean somebody like jeffrey as you said was passionate and quite critical of himself but he would get on with it and the next ball he could put aside John Edrich was wonderful at that, you know, he'd play on this and he'd play the next ball with no regard for that. Whereas some others of us would play and miss a few times and start to believe we had no right to be there, you know, and that would make it, that would, you then have, would play like that. So I, I'm not saying it's, you know, this sort of soul searching is a good thing always. Um, there's a, a chapter in the book and I, I'm not even sure if I'm, um, if I'm pronouncing the, uh, the, the the title of it correctly, Homo Ludens, is that right? Yes. Um, yeah. And it, 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 you start to discuss almost uh, the the meaning of sport itself rather than just its moral yes. dimensions. I yes. wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. I won't try and ask a more comprehensive question than that because I'm not sure I grasped everything in there. No, it's, it's the title of a book by a Dutch historian called, called Hoitzinger. Jan Hoitzinger, and it was written just before, it was, I think, first published during the war. It was written just before the the Second World War. And he regarded the essence of play as being what children do together spontaneously, or even what animals do together, young animals, like young lions or young dogs or young cats, wrestling, playing, 
where the, there's no purpose of the play. It's just fun. And they do it instinctively. And they do it, there are limits to how rough you can be with each other, but you can be quite rough with each other as well. And he saw that as the essence of play. And he saw discipline, calculation, uh, practice, seriousness, professionalism, all as going against the spirit of play, which I don't agree with. I think that the spirit of play for grown-ups has to include a bit of that child mentality or that animal mentality, but has to go beyond that. And there's nothing, you know, it's, it's a good thing to be disciplined and learned, learn how to play better and to work at it and so on. So, uh, but then somebody like Brendan McCullum comes along and says, look, he and the New Zealand team had lost the reasons why they played cricket in the first place, which was love of the game, hitting the ball, bowling fast, getting someone out, running and making a catch, you know, doing these things spontaneously and with enormous enjoyment and pleasure. And he shifted the mentality of himself and of the team so that New Zealand became exemplary, I think, over the past few years in their attitude to the game. And given that they have a population of about 5 million people, which is sort of, you know, just a little over half the population of the United Kingdom, and yet they hold their own, got to the World Cup final and lost it by that extraordinary mm. uh, last over, etc. Um, they've been exemplary in their attitude to the game, both in terms of spiritual cricket as we normally think of it, but also in the spirit that they approach the game in. And I could have done with a bit more of that too, mm. you know, of a little bit of that. I think I always did enjoy the game and it was always, it was almost always fun and pleasurable, even if it was sometimes grimly determined. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, so I think that play includes all these aspects and that includes love of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you conclude the book um, with with some questions for a few other people, um, and uh, you, one of the questions you asked is, is whether the phrase "it's not cricket" will have any meaning in the future. Mm. And mm. I wondered if we could sort of maybe finish by trying to answer that question, but expanding it slightly. And I wonder if, in the modern and the new environment that we live in, the immediacy of social media and uh, the instant reaction to everything that happens, which was very evident, for example, in the Australia-South Africa Farago, mm -hmm. there was mm -hmm. an instant mm -hmm. rise to judgment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you, I wonder if you think that will have an impact on what the spirit of cricket is and becomes, and what that phrase becomes in the future. It's a very interesting and difficult question. My own feeling is the spirit of the game is not in a bad place. I personally think that at the highest level, the decision review system for umpires has improved the behaviour of the game and the attitudes between teams. I think that the virus and the limitations of the virus and the anxieties about the virus have meant that uh, people have managed to play international cricket this year in England 
And the spirit of the game has been very good indeed. And partly I suspect that's because there is this feeling that we're all in it together. You know, we all have to be, they all had to be in a bubble. That there was the bubble of the England team and then there was a bubble of the Pakistan and the West Indies team and um, the Australian team for the one-day matches. But they were all part of a, of a very carefully protected bubble for obvious reasons. And I think that, and the umpires too, and I think that was, uh, that, you know, that could be an outcome of the virus, socially as well as in sport and cricket that people realise that things can happen in life that are much more serious than sport, but that have to be coped with by, by trying to be in it together. We've got the same issues coming up with the virus just now. And, you know, is there a, a willingness and a, a courage and an understanding enough of it, of that, of the need for it, for us to all feel that we can be in it, for, in it together, even if there's another lockdown or the approaches to lockdown over the next few weeks or months so i think that the spirit of cricket is not in a bad place i think that it's challenged by the emphasis on money on sponsorship that requires success at any cost you know that like we were saying about that australian attitude uh, as i thought it was for a while and i don't believe that in general about australian cricket by the way i want to repeat that um, some of my best friends were Australian, um, and um, uh, and and I think instant gratification. You know, you, you advertisement, social media, instant instant communication. Everything, anything can be said. Fake news. All these kind of worrying things that have grown up as well, countered by serious opposition to those things, I th- and 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 the, and the pressure of time that games get shorter and shorter. And as you said, instant gratification, instant judgment, instant reaction. Um, all those things are difficult to cope with and, and can lead to what I would see as unfortunate or non-valuable behaviours. But it can also lead to something better. Yeah. And I think that people are not doing too badly. My thanks to Mike for joining us today. What a treat it was to speak to the great man. His latest book is called The Spirit of Cricket and is published by Constable. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then do spread the word. And if you're feeling especially kind, then why not leave us a review on your podcast app? To find out more about The Night Watchman, visit www.thenightwatchman.net. The Night Watchman podcast is written and hosted by John Houghton, produced and edited by James Wallace.